This is Cocktails Distilled, a podcast that takes your favorite spirits and liqueurs from the still to the cocktail glass. In each episode, we talk to distillers and creators about particular expressions that their brand have released, what they are, why they were created, and in what cocktails they can be used. Are you ready to understand what's in your glass, or perhaps should be? Welcome to Cocktails Distilled. As spring descends in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the perfect time to pay tribute to the efforts of the humble bee. Darting through fields to acquire pollen and nectar, bees are symbols of renewal and community. Within the spirit world, their efforts and enterprise are no better represented than by Vermont Distillery Bar Hill in the form of their floral raw honey gin. We talked to Ryan Christensen, head distiller at Caledonia Spirits, the makers of Bar Hill Gin, about bees, honey cocktails, and why gin is your perfect spring drink. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. With honey so much the focus of your gin, this must be your favorite time of year. Absolutely, for sure. I mean, I'm actually looking out the window right now. It's snow still coming down here in Vermont, but uh, it, it's undoubtedly the start of gin season. And, uh, you know, the, the maple season just, just came to an end and flowers are just starting to bloom. So, yeah, it's the beginning of gin season. We're looking forward to it. Now, tell us, how did a beekeeper and a distiller end up joining forces? Sure. So Todd Hardy is a lifelong beekeeper. You know, he's a farmer, just a true lover of agriculture and, you know, just really a beautiful person. And, you know, Todd was a beekeeper since his early childhood. You know, when he was 12 years old, he was keeping bees. And, you know, that just evolved into, uh, you know, a love and connection with the bees and eventually became a commercial operation, which, which led into all sorts of, you know, products, you know, created with, with, uh, with honey. My background, I was um, more of a lover of fermentation, you know, sort of naturally fascinated with this idea of fermentation as means of food preservation, you know, so really interested in obviously, you know, beer and wine and, and you know, fermented beverages, but but even with foods, you know, sauerkrauts, kimchi, you know, kombucha and, you know, not non-alcoholic space as well. But being here in Vermont, you know, this is a bit of a, a beer mecca that took me into, you know, beer brewing. And uh, I opened up a home brewing store. <clears throat> and so, you know, I was really focused on educating people on how to make beer at home. I was making a tremendous amount of beer at home and really had my sights on commercial brewing. But when I met Todd, you know, his connection to the bees and this this idea of, of adding value to agriculture and bringing it into the spirit store and, and behind the bar and, you know, really kind of taking agricultural products and distilling to a canvas that bartenders that can, you know, continue on to, uh, to elevate. It was really just this clear, clear concept of, of being this bridge between agriculture and cocktail culture. And I had a tremendous amount to learn. I knew almost nothing about distillation, you know, other than what I'd read in a couple of, you know, books on the slow days at the homebrewing store. But it was just a fascinating journey to partner with Todd and the opportunity that was right in front of me. And so I, I joined Todd's team and said, let's, um, let's build a distillery. What was it about distilling, though? Because I imagine that you could have made a honey beer, a kind of a made creation. So what was it about distilling that actually interested you? 
Well, it's this idea, you know, I'd spent so much time with fermentation. So, you know, leveraging the power of yeast to create alcohol, but, you know, thinking about more like, you know, mead and beer and wine, but this idea of another set of variables after that, you know, this whole, this, the sort of invisible science of distillation, you know, actually boiling it, you know, putting it into the vapor state and then recondensing it and then tasting it and smelling it and trying to really, truly understand what happened within that column. You know, it, it was a tremendous challenge and, and a little bit, you know, mind-boggling initially. But you know, it's it's not that complicated. You know, the reality is that distillation is very simple. You know, some of the other nuances are very challenging: supply chain and you know, packaging and all of those things. Right. But the reality of, of distillation is that you're trying to achieve something very simple, and if you approach it with really high-quality raw materials coming in. And patience, you know, during and and, um, and after distillation, you know, and, and an absolute commitment to, to, you know, making sure from a sensory perspective that what, what has come out of the still is, is worthy of going into the bottle. You know, it's, it's, um, it's achievable. What do you think it is about honey that enables it to pair so well with gin? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if you think about honey, you know, I wouldn't think about it as a sugar sweetener. I would think about it more as like a vehicle to deliver botanicals. And, and that was, that was something that I really had to come to terms with, you know, but this, this, you know, when you open up a a barrel of raw honey, you know, the first thing you're going to see is just this layer of all the stuff that rises to the top of the honey. And what's within that is, is just evidence of, you know, it's pollen, it's propolis, it's, it's beeswax. Sometimes it's, it's, you know, things from the hive, you know, parts of bees that didn't make it. And it's just all of this, this material that came from the hive that is actually evidence of, of where the bees are foraging. And, you know, the, the, we, we think of the, the bees as, you know, if you think about the flight of the bees, you know, they're, they're leaving the hive, they're, they're, they're setting out, they're collecting nectar all day, and they're collecting, you know, pollen, you know, all day, you know, as well, just, just, you know, on, on the fuzzy little fur, you know, and, and ultimately they're bringing all of this goodness back to the hive. And then they're producing this brilliant raw honey, this, which has this creamy, this viscous texture that's, that's um, undeniably just, just a unique sugar source in itself. But the botanicals that travel with that honey truly unlock flavors that we just don't have the tools in the distillery to find, right? Like I, I think of the beehive, if, if we're loading juniper in the trays of the gin still, you know, the, 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 the tool is the still to extract that juniper oil. Whereas I'm thinking the, um, the beehive is really more of the tool to extract the flavors of the land. Every year in late September, you guys run Bees Knees Week to help save the bees. Can you talk a little bit about why bees are so important? Yeah, I mean, bees are, are vital to, to, you know, our food system. I mean, it's, it's vital to humanity. But, the, you know, people don't realize, you know, one third of every bite of food that we eat depends on pollinators. And, and bees are, the, you know, the most popular and important pollinators of all. You know, meanwhile, bees are threatened by so many forces. You know, there's just so many things that are just threatening the, the health of the hive right now. And it seems to just continue. You know, it's just, it's, it's, if it's not one thing, it's, it's the next. And, um, you know, usually associated with, with just climate change. Um, so we, we started uh, an effort to support the bees. We, you know, we call it Bees Knees Week, but we, we started Bees Knees Week for a few important reasons. But, you know, one was just to shine a light on the importance of pollinators, 
but two is is to to communicate the threats that they face and make sure that you know the general consumer you know those out there drinking gin understand the importance of uh, of pollinators and, and and how to support them but three really just to 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 stimulate this very important conversation you know while enjoying one of the world's greatest cocktails you know which is the bee's knees so the program you know we we leverage social media and and gin cocktails to um, encourage people to to order a bee's knees take a photo of that, post it on Instagram, and then we plant 10 square feet of pollinator habitat to support the bees. And it's just been a, a, a huge success. You know, every year it, it continues to grow and it gets bigger and bigger. And, and, you know, I think more and more people are educated about the importance of the bees to the point where they're walking into the grocery store saying, you know, I'm not drinking a gin cocktail right now. I'm grocery shopping, but recognizing that, that I still need these bees in my life. Now, colony collapse disorder is one of the major threats to bees. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, colony collapse disorder, you know, it's, it's you know, generally, you know, when CCD affects a hive, you know, you'll find that, you know, the vast majority of the bees, which is, you know, largely the worker bees, just unexpectedly die. And, um, you know, what, what what generally happens is, you know, that just leaves the hive with, you know, in, insufficient nectar to feed the, the the queen and the next generation of hives, and ultimately the the you know the life of the hive comes crashing down. Do they know why? I I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of theories. You know, I I think generally it's being tied back to the use of, of neonics in in you know agricultural practice. You know, just this use of these these terrible pesticides that that just impact you know the flight and the health of the bees. So you, you talked about planting habitats around your distillery. So I assume you ensure that those habitats are completely natural and don't have any sort of pesticides or... Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's um, actually the, the, the partnership that we've established is with a group called Be The Change. And they, they do amazing work with largely they're planting in and around solar fields but they're really focused less on commercial beekeeping, but more on wild pollinators. So, you know, and it goes way beyond the honeybee. You know, this is, you know, butterflies and, you know, this is hummingbirds. And there's just so many more pollinators than we even realize. But when you walk into these fields, the life is just amazing. I mean, there's just, you'll see so many insects that you've just never really paid attention to. And, and, you know, walking through the fields with Mike, who, who, uh, who heads up the, the organization, I mean, he'll point out to you some of these really important relationships and, you know, the hummingbird and the jewelweed, for example, you know, and just how like, you know, just evolution has brought these, these pollinators and these plants together to produce these things that we all just, just blindly take for granted every day. Now, how big are the habitats that you have around your distillery itself? So we have, we, we're located here in, in Montpelier. We, we have a, a, a you know, new distillery here in Montpelier. We're, we're about one mile outside of downtown Montpelier. So we're, you know, in, granted Montpelier is a very small town, but it is the, the state capital. Across Barry Street is uh, Savin's Pasture, which is about 100 acres of undeveloped land. And it's, it's a pretty rare thing to have in a downtown capital. Um, so there's just a lot of life around us. And then on the other side of the distillery is the Winooski River, um, which is actually a river I grew up in in a couple towns you know, east of here. So it's a really special uh, piece of water for me.
You mentioned that you did move recently. Can you tell us a little bit about the new distillery? Yeah, so the, the distillery, it's located, uh, we actually got to, um, to build the road and name the road. So it's located here on Gin Lane in Montpelier. But we, um, it's a 27,000 square foot distillery. We, we built this distillery with a real focus on sustainability and, and you know, really ensuring that we can minimize our footprint. And, and that's, that's work that continues on. You know, we, we still have a lot, of, a lot of work to do on that topic. But, you know, we're, we're equipped with an 80, 84 kilowatt solar array on the roof. And we have a rock, water recirculation system that, that's powered by electricity, but that electricity is offset by that solar array. You know, we have we have waste separation um, here on site to make sure that our waste stillage can can make its way to a biodigester for energy production. Nice. Um, you know, we've really designed this whole facility, you know, as, as efficiently and in, 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 in as clean of a possible way to produce our spirits while telling our story. You know, if you really if you when you walk into the Gin Lane Distillery, you know, you're going to see barrels of raw honey. You know, you're going to see silos of grain. It's really going to feel a lot like an agricultural experience because that's 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 what we're here to do. You know, we're really the next the next step. You know, we like to think of ourselves as an opportunity for farms, but but more so the bridge to cocktail culture. So you'll see the silo, you know, full of grain. You'll see the distillery. You can see our team, you know, producing spirits, and then you'll land at a cocktail bar. And you know, here on site, we have a full kind of world class team of bartenders that are making amazing cocktails, and you know, really trying to to elevate the experience while educating people. You know, what is it about a gin cocktail that's so special? How can I make this at home? And how is this really related to agriculture anyway? You know, those are important questions and conversations that are having. I like to think you can have a fancy drink with mud boots on. You know, it's a safe space here. Nice. Yeah. Now, you mentioned barrels of honey. How much honey is actually in each bottle of Bar Hill? So the um, the Barthol vodka, you know, we also make a vodka. Um, we, we, we don't make as much vodka as we do gin, of course, but um, our vodka is made from fermented raw honey. Right. And it takes about four pounds of honey to produce one bottle of, of vodka. And that's because it, you know 100% of that product is, is made from raw honey. In the case of our gins, you know, we're, we're working really hard to preserve the, the, the raw aspect. So the, the, the honey is being added after distillation. And we're using just enough of that honey to bring a balance to that big, bold burst of juniper. You know, our, inside of our basket and our gin still, we're only using juniper. You know, so it's in it. We're, we're extracting a tremendous amount of juniper oil because we really want to bring people right straight to gin. You know, this is Bar Hill is a big flavor and that was very much intentional. It's the body of the honey and the balance between the honey and the sort of resinous juniper that allow the botanical nuances to kind of shine through. So does that mean other than juniper, there are no other botanicals? That's correct. Yeah, it's it's just, just sort of the countless botanicals that live within the, the raw honey. Explain to us exactly how raw honey post-distillation actually works. Because, I mean, honey is quite sort of, thick and viscous yeah for sure you know it, it's it's really challenging to be honest you know and and it's not necessarily challenging but inconsistent you know obviously this is you know real ingredients coming from real beehives and you know it's it's there are simple buttons that we could press um, but we choose not to you know we could heat the honey we could filter the honey there's a variety of things that we could do 
you know, before it comes into our process, but that would sacrifice the flavor. So, you know, when we're working with raw honey, we're opening up a 650 pound drum and, you know, it's just this, you know, really thick, viscous, waxy honey, which, which um, provides this incredible flavor, but you know, it's what's within it is, is pollen, propolis, beeswax. I mean, there's just so much. And, all of that, you know, obviously we, we have a, a process by which we, we sort of choose which barrel goes to gin and which barrel goes to vodka. And that's, that's served us pretty well to, to you know, alleviate some of these challenges. But you're never going to get around the fact that it's, it's, it's fresh raw honey from the hive. And it's, we do go through a filtration process before we bottle. And that's where a lot of challenges can come in with raw honey as well as every other step of the way. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's just so worth it. Yeah. You know, the flavor that's coming through all of these steps of the process, you know, if, if we were to put that filter earlier on or to, you know, apply heat, it, it, it would just come through like any other sort of sugar source. Instead, we've got this full round flavor that is just crucial to the, the product. But at the beginning of the distillation process, you do actually use a direct fire copper still, do you not? Well, we used to. We we started on a 15-gallon direct fire still. You know, we used to run the still, you know, once per week, and then eventually it was every day, and then eventually it was three times per day. I mean, it was a very small still, and, you know, by you know, the nature of distillation, it produced a small amount of gin, you know, flowing out of the parrot. So I'd be running that still, and Todd would actually be driving um, what we called Mom's Red Car. It was his mom's um, Mercury station wagon. And, you know, we would just load that red car to the gills full of gin and Todd would drive it out to market and he'd, he'd call me on the way back and say, I hope the still's on because, you know, it's the gin is gone and we need some more. Right. And, you know, eventually we had to scale that up. Today we're running steam jacketed stainless steel stills. We've got three of them. You know, they're, they're all on site. We run all three of them every single day and we're, we're blending the gin from all three stills together. So we've, we've got more capacity here now today. But yeah, I, I still kind of miss the the days of the fifteen gallon. Still, you know, I could I could actually pick the thing up and scrub it clean, which uh, you know, can't do that anymore. Right. Now the brands won a number of awards. What do you think it is that makes your honey gin so special? I think the work is is the bees. You know, it's it's um, these. Like I said, the beehive is really a tool to extract flavor that that we otherwise just couldn't access and. You know, I, I think we've got a team of people here in Vermont that are so committed to it that, you know, we, we continue to, to, you know, really make ourselves proud. But it's, it's a team-wide effort of ultimately just celebrating the great work of the bees. And how many beehives do you have? We, we work with, with a few family farms. And Todd is still beekeeping as well, but, you know, on, on a pretty small scale up in Greensboro, but we work with a, a variety of family farms that have all worked with, with Todd and the distillery, you know, for, for a very long time. And, you know, and that helps us manage supply chain to make sure that we've got the right honey, the right amount of honey. But more importantly, the, the honey's coming from the right region. Now, if someone were to buy a bottle, how would you want them to first experience it? Yeah, I'm probably not your normal gin consumer, but I... I really think gin should be, you know, first poured in a glass and you just need to experience the aroma of the gin. I use my nose in the distillery more so than I taste. That's just, you know, sort of an important part of how I 
you know, really classify things and, and, and evaluate them. But I think everything deserves really spending some time on the nose. But I also think sipping gin on its own, you know, let gin be gin. And, you know, like I said before, gin is, it's such a canvas for the next phase of art that's going to happen behind the bar. So I, I look at gin as really evaluating sort of what is that starting point to really understand what the bartender is going to do or, or what the bartender has done, you know, with that canvas. Now, you mentioned earlier that honey isn't just a source of sugar within the gin. Does that mean that when someone tastes it, they're getting a lot of the florals that the bees derived their pollen from? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a beer brewer by background. So naturally I'm just really focused on this concept of balance and, and striving for big, bold flavors. And one of the things that honey allows us to do is to bring a, a, a strong botanical punch of juniper without it being overbearing. Right. So, you know, when, when, when you taste Bart Hill, you're going to get a, a lot of gin flavor within that gin, but there's no one piece that's going to throw you out of balance. It's not going to be too dry. You know, it's, 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 um, even though there's probably more juniper in Bar Hill than any other gin on the planet, <laughs> it's balanced by this, this big, bold, you know, and subtly sweet honey. And when those two ingredients kind of balance each other out, you know, what, what remains is that floral burst that you're going to get from, from the work of the bees. There are a variety of different ways that gin can be presented. What is it, do you think, about floral gins that make them so tempting to people? You know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I think folks are ready for something that's just not one-dimensional. You know, I think, I think the gin category has many more layers to it that we're just starting to explore. And, you know, I think this, this concept of, of um, sort of exploring, you know, the sort of the floral depths of where we live is exciting because, you know, it's, it, it ties you back to a place, you know, and I think when you open up a bottle of Bar Hill and you pour a glass of it, hopefully that brings you, you know, to this place called Vermont or the Northeast, you know, it really, to me, you know, all of our products really speak to, you know, the area that surrounds the distillery. And, and that's kind of within our team's DNA, you know, we're not really capable of making something that doesn't really feel like it came out of Vermont because that's, that's the way we, we live and drink. So in a way, what you're saying is that the bees bring a certain amount of terroir to the gin. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, they're, they're out there basically scraping the earth of, of um, all the botanical nuances that live here. Now, if a honey um, floral flavor is predominant, what other flavors do you think work well with that? I mean, our, our gin loves citrus. You know, I, I think um, specifically, I, I really love playing with lemon, you know, with our gin. But, you know, I, I think just bringing some brightness into that resinous kind of drying juniper and velvety texture of the honey, um, it's just, it, it really works very well. I mean, a, a bee's knees cocktail with Bar Hill is, is hard to beat. Now, obviously, a bee's knees is the cocktail that you would make with Bar Hill. But if someone wanted to go beyond that, what other cocktails, gin cocktails, would you recommend work particularly well? Yeah, there's, there's so many. I mean, it makes it makes a great gimlet. I personally really enjoy a last word. You know, it's a great classic cocktail that 
I, I actually that's that's one of my favorites to drink out in market when I'm you know in a new city. So go find go find some Bar Hill and go go find a bartender that wants to make a last word for me. I also my go to you know at home is a gin and tonic. You know especially if uh, if you've got some good tonic syrup, you know make a make a good you know real cinchona extracted uh, gin and tonic, and that's that's a real delight. Have there been any cocktails that bartenders have made? with the gin that you didn't expect. Yeah, I mean every day this this is this is sort of the exciting part of the job, you know. I, I think people don't realize that, you know, American cocktail culture was was built on gin. You know, gin was just just front and center to to you know sort of before prohibition, during prohibition, after prohibition. And you know, two thirds of every cocktail menu was gin. And, you know, it wasn't until you know, the fifties and the sixties with great marketing that vodka replaced gin. And, you know, that's arguably okay, but it's only great marketing that could have folks thinking that they love something flavorless, odorless, and neutral. And, you know, so suddenly what, what happened was, you know, vodka replaced gin in cocktail culture and then cocktail culture died. And, you know, everybody just migrated to beer and wine. And, (laughs) you know, now, all these years later, we're all kind of looking back at cocktail culture and gin's coming back to life. And there's just so many just brilliant classic cocktails that are going to live on forever. And, you know, I just think the world is suddenly appreciating, you know, a truly balanced cocktail and and the foundations of, of making a great cocktail. And that's just opening up so many, you know, forgotten cocktails that, that are as good as it gets. And, um, you know, I, I've been, you know, having a lot of fun just replacing, you know, whiskey and in, in whiskey cocktails with with gin or even barrel aged gin. You know, like a Martinez, for example, is a, is a great cocktail to sip on. Now, speaking of barrel aged gin, you guys have brought out a Tomcat gin, which is an older aged expression. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, Tomcat, it, it's it's a barrel-aged gin, so it's the same distillate that we're working with in the distillery. You know, we're running the same process with the same still, but then we're sending it into the barrel room. We're putting it into a brand new American oak barrel. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you how that came about. We, um, back at the 15-gallon still that I mentioned to you earlier, when, when we decided to scale up into the 300-gallon still, that took us about a year and a half to, to get the flavor right. And it was, it was quite a challenging project, um, but we had an absolute commitment that we weren't going to go to market without really making sure. I mean, if I could, if I could detect it in a blind taste test, I knew it wasn't going to go to market. And we were making some really good gin. It, it just wasn't quite where we wanted it to go. And at the same time, we had this, this still that I, I wanted to be making whiskey at the time. And, we didn't have enough money to, to, to fix the whiskey still. And I was having some condenser issues with it. So the whiskey still was shut down and I had just bought a bunch of brand new American oak barrels. And so I, I guess it was really means of procrastination. I just couldn't bear to send any more gin down the drain. Right. And, uh, but at the same time I couldn't send it to market. So we just threw it in the barrel and, uh, you know, it's just a couple of months later we opened up the barrels and there was this, you know, the brand new American oak brought this like, you know, kind of hard, dense, you know, sort of Kentucky-like flavor. But when it met that juniper in, in, in the raw honey, it really just softened everything. And it, it gave it this sort of like coniferous aroma. You know, I grew up here in Vermont and my parents had a, a plot of land with a bunch of cedar trees in the back. And it was like reminiscent of building forts in my backyard when I was a kid. And 
it was truly this flavor that that was was really special and i hadn't really it was more of an aroma that that i really hadn't experienced and we said hey there's something to this so we actually at that point we named it tomcat not thinking that that would be the the name and market but just that's what it tasted like and smelled like and felt like and uh so it was sort of the nickname for the barrels of Tomcat up in the up in the loft. Eventually, the name stuck, and we took it to market. And has that been as successful as your original gin? Yeah, I mean, we don't make as much. We 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 struggle to keep up, but it's it's just got a tremendous following. I mean, it's it's I've, I've had a lot of fun, you know, just just you know, with my beer background, a lot of my old uh, home brewing buddies. You know, it seems like a lot of my. My, my beer beer friends are really uh, you know taking a liking to Tomcat, but it's also done really well in in you know in the whiskey world. You know, it's kind of like in the in the hot summertime. You know, when it's just too hot for bourbon, Tomcat's a really nice play. And then similarly in the winter, you know, it makes a great winter gin cocktail. Now the UK has been going through a gin renaissance for a number of years. Do you think that gin has had the same sort of impact in the U.S.? I mean, not to the point that the U.K. has had. I mean, you know, Americans are still drinking way too much vodka. And, you know, I, I think of like vodka is like skim milk, you know, and I, I just can't quite figure out why people are still drinking it. But, I mean, I enjoy making vodka, but our, our, when we make vodka, we're distilling twice and only twice, you know, we're, like this idea of distilled 40 times um, for a better flavor that, that, yeah. that just doesn't check out. That's distilled 40 times to remove the flavor that you didn't like from the starting point. You know, we, we started with, with pure raw honey. You know, we're going to distill as little as we possibly can. We've got to get to 190 proof to call it vodka, but we want to hold on to that, that essence, you know, everything that came from the land and from the beehive, we're trying to make sure that, that travels through the column and lands in the vodka. And that's easier said than done. It requires us to run incredibly slowly and two passes and only two. But we're really proud of the vodka we make. But at the end of the day, gin is where the excitement is. You know, there's just you know, t- too much consumption of vodka. And I think folks need to look past the marketing and really think about the flavor that they're consuming. And I think when we do that, when we're honest with ourselves, you know, gin is a really exciting place to be. Do you think that the U.S. is still progressing towards a gin renaissance? Yeah. Or do you think that it will always not be quite as popular as bourbon? No, I think it's coming. I I think it's inevitably coming. I think globally it's, you know, you you can't hide from the fact that two-thirds of the cocktail menus during Prohibition were gin, and that's where all all of the greatest cocktails were invented, you know, just before Prohibition, during Prohibition, or after, you know, and that's... That's, um, you know, that's, that's going to come through. It's just a matter of the right conversations. And those conversations are happening. I mean, consumers are so curious behind the bar and bartenders are such great educators these days. The, you know, COVID allowing, you know, we're going to get back to having some of those great conversations again. And, um, you know, great gin cocktails will prevail. Do you think that COVID has since everyone was making cocktails and drinks at home, has actually increased consumers' curiosity and things like gin will, once everything is open, benefit from the fact that the curiosity will bring things forward by leaps and bounds. 
Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, this moment feels a lot like back um, in my early homebrewing days. You know, we were just a bunch of yeast geeks and like it was not cool at all. You know, we were we were we were not cool at all and, and we're making a bunch of beer and we're swapping recipes and and then eventually the bartenders started to ask questions and and get curious and then consumers got curious and before we knew it there was this craft beer renaissance and everybody wanted to know every hop variety when the hops were added you know yeast strains i mean all of the details needed to be known or they were detected while they were drinking it I and mean, the conversations got really vibrant and I think what's happening right now with everybody locked at home, we're all making great cocktails at home or we're perfecting it or we're, we're, we're caring a little bit more. And I think when we're all allowed to go back to the cocktail bar, the conversation, you know, between both sides of the bar is going to be that much elevated. And I think it's just going to be that much more contagious. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do think this is setting us up for, um, for a really good moment. You know, I, I think the, the, you know, the next phase of the Roaring Twenties is upon us. Now, you guys have been going since 2011. What changes have you seen in the industry, and particularly in gin, since that time? It's been huge. I mean, you know, in 2011 and 12, you know, it was, you know, a a bottle of gin at, you know, 35 or 40 US dollars was just, you know, an insanely high price tag. And, you know, it was really hard to get distribution and, you know, we really had to convince people that, that, you know, gin could even sell at that price point. And at the same time, you know, our raw materials are so expensive, you know, there's no way we could sell it for anything less than that. You know, over the course of just three or four years, suddenly there's just so many more gins out in the market and, and now even more so, you know, it just continues every day. There's more and more gins, but it's great. I mean, I love the variety that's out there, you know, the, the, I don't want to say the more the merrier, but, you know, ultimately, you know, we're all trying to drive toward the same kind of cultural movement, which is, you know, drinking higher quality beverage rather than higher quantity beverage. And, you know, I I think, I think more great innovative distillers is a wonderful addition to the community. So kind of a um, high tide rises all ships kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. As long as folks are bringing great products out to market, it's an exciting place to be. What do you want people to take away from their experience of drinking Bar Hill Gin? Well, you know, I, I think this this team in this place in Vermont, you know, gin just just pairs well with great conversation, and that's that's kind of how we live here. And you know, we our our team, you know, we we live with this ethos of asking our, our, ourselves this question of you know what makes the gin taste better and. You know, that's beyond sort of the literal sense of, of, you know, what specifically makes the gin taste better. Of course, you know, every step inside of the distillery makes a difference, but every step outside of the distillery makes a difference as well. You know, so how we partner with farmers, you know, how we, how we you know, take care of the land, how we support and empower our team, how we partner with our community. You know, all of these things kind of create a world where gin just tastes a little bit better. And, you know, I, I think... I think if folks can can challenge themselves to look look through the marketing on the shelf, you know, look through the the spirits shop and really try to find something that pairs well with the world that we you want to live in, I think that's the conversation that you should be driving right now and and I'm hoping that Bar Hill drives that conversation. Well, thank you Ryan for joining us. Obviously, if people want more information on Bar Hill, they can go to your website 
which is actually caledoniaspirits.com, or they can connect with the brand on your social. Yep, it, you can actually go to barhill.com as well. There's, there's two R's involved. Yep, and our, our Instagram is uh, at uh, barhillgin. Excellent. All right, well, thank you again for your time. Thank you, Tiff. Pleasure to be here. And we'd also like to thank you for listening. Be sure to visit cocktailstostill.com to access the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on iTunes. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.